If you're new here, my name is Joel, and um, I'm going to teach from the Bible. We have uh, teaching every week here at uh, Emmanuel from the Bible. We're in the book of Samuel, and uh, I'm going to read to you from chapter 17 of 2 Samuel today. We'll read the last verse of 16 and the whole of the, whole of the next chapter. So it's quite a long reading, um, and it's, it's entertaining if you get into it. It's quite a complex little story, so I urge you to listen and read along with me carefully because it's one of those where the more you concentrate, the more you'll, you'll get into the story and be so excited because it is quite exciting. So I'll just read, to that, read you that today. This is the, the closing stages of David's life. David's one of the heroes of the Bible, heroes of history, and he is in this part of our story um, going into exile, out of his city, his home city, Jerusalem, where he was the king. It was his royal base. And his son, Absalom, in, a, in a, an act of defiance and rebellion, had gradually captured the hearts of the whole nation and turned them against his father, David, uh, usurping his position as king. So Absalom, at this point, is in Jerusalem, uh, taking on all of David's uh, role and prerogatives and status, and David is out there uh, in the wilderness, actually beginning to uh, have to face the fact that his son is going to launch an attack on him. So that's the background to the story. What I want to look at in, in the story I'm going to read to you in just a moment from chapter 17, which, by the way, is one of the, the longer and more complex chapters that I will have read to you for a while from the Bible, and it's... it's uh, it's going to require your investment of attention because uh, when you give your mind to it and listen carefully and follow the story, it will prove exciting. If you don't, it will prove long. Um, so please just stay with me as we read through it in just a moment. But the theme I want to bring out from it that's right there is the theme of uh, allegiance. We, all of us have to make decisions on uh, w what we will be allied to in our lives, choices of allegiance. Uh, they can be trivial choices of allegiance, or they can be matters of life and death. In the case of this man, Ahithophel, it's, it's a matter of life and death. He was one of David's close friends and counselors. And as you might know if you've been with us in recent weeks, he has joined the other side. He's joined the side of the rebellious son, Absalom. Ahithophel is the Judas of the Old Testament. He betrays the true king and turns against him. And we're going to see how it goes for him. We're going to see how it works out. Um, we're going to see the, the sad story, the sad ending that Ahithophel comes to, and, and take out some lessons that can be applied to us. So let's read from the end of uh, chapter 16. I'm going to read the last verse of it, and then I'm going to read uh, through the whole of chapter 17. It says this, Now, in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I'll come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I'll strike down only the king. And I'll bring all the people back to you. As a bride comes home to her husband, you seek the life of only one man. 
people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai, the archite, also, and let us hear what he has to say. Now, a little bit of background for you here. Hushai, who is also David's friend, is in Absalom's court, but he's not a traitor. He's a spy. He's on David's side. Absalom doesn't know that, and so Hushai is about to give him advice that won't help Absalom. So that's just some background for you to know before we get into it. Call Hushai the archite also, let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men. And that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. From Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. And we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. We shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men in Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight in the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took the spread and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Achimaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they'd gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. 
By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off to his home, to his own city, set his house in order, and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Machanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasar over the army instead of Jael. Amasar was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Let's pray right now. Father, we're grateful to you for your kindness in the gift of these stories, Lord, that though they might seem peculiar, curious, distant from us, we know that by the power of your spirit, they have the potential to bring transformation to our lives as we see in them the glory of your son, Jesus. We see in them the purposes, the plans you have for the world, and we see in them the wisdom that you want for us to live by. And so we pray that you would help us to see. We pray you would open our eyes, each one in this room, each one listening, open our eyes to see the things you want us to see and to have our hearts and our lives changed as a result. We ask this according to your mercy for every single person here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to look at Ahithophel's allegiance, his allegiance to Absalom. He makes the choice in a couple of chapters earlier of joining with David's rebellious son Absalom. And I want to look at why he's made that choice and the difference that it has made. He's, he's, he's made an attractive choice for sure. And that's the first thing I want us to see. The choice he's made is, is one that you could kind of understand on one level. I mean, Absalom is, is, is an attractive guy. It, it, he's come into the story pages before with that description. He's, he's handsome, he's tall. That counts for a lot at this point in history. You can swing a sword wider than most people. You've, he's got long hair that's kind of, kind of glamorous. He's kind of glossy, glamorous, blingy kind of guy. He's, he is impressive from a distance and so probably quite impressive close up. And he's kind of winning the hearts of the nation. And Ahithophel, Ahithophel is no fool. He, he's probably watched carefully. He's evaluated this man and thought, I, I am going to throw in my lot with him. To David's surprise and deep disappointment, Ahithophel has joined this guy. And we, we need to think, why would he do that? He, he's, Ahithophel's smart. He's not stupid. He's, he's He's famous even as it says, you remember that first verse I read to you? In those days, the council, verse 23 of chapter 16, the council that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. Did you hear that? It's like this, he, he is highly respected. 
his advice counts because when he talks, he's so smart. He's one of those people, perhaps you've known them in your, your personal uh, experience, people who maybe they're head for business, they're enterprise, they're quick thinking, just, just runs rings around everyone else. You feel it hard to catch up with them. They're so bright. They, they are quick to form the smart opinion and they, they read the signs of the times. They, they, they read the right blogs. They, they, they follow the right journalists. They follow the right opinion polls. They know where society is going. They know where it's going and they're planning their lives accordingly. They're smart. Ahithophel comes across here rather like that and he's not the only person. There are others in the book of Samuel who, who we could mention who are similar. They are they're wise in the sense that they are cunning. Wisdom is a kind of continuum, a spectrum. It's got the cunning end, and it's got this end up here, which sometimes doesn't look very cunning. Some kinds of wisdom on the surface can even look foolish. If you read the whole Bible, you'll see that. God's wisdom often looks foolish. But there's a kind of wisdom that's obviously smart. God can use it, but if all you have is this kind of wisdom, you're in danger. And that's Ahithophel's danger. He is clever, but he's not ultimately wise. Not really. He, he's, he, he understands how to get by in a world of survival of the fittest. If that's what the world is, if the world really is just about survival techniques, winning through, dog eat dog, if it's just you know evaluating the terrain and seeing what is the smartest way to get through, in fact, what's the smartest way not just to thrive, to, to sort of survive, but to thrive and flourish here, I, I, I will flourish because I will win over these other fools. Ahithophel's got that kind of cunning. He's, he's like what, when Oscar Wilde said this uh, over 100 years ago, he said, a, a cynic is a person who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. The price of everything, but the value of nothing. You, you can be smart with numbers, with, with trends, with, with fashionable opinions. You can be smart with keeping in. You can be smart in all kinds of ways. You can know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, nothing at all. You can be so as far as God's wisdom is concerned, completely ignorant in spite of being the cleverest person in the room. That's shocking. That ought to cause us to stop and think. Ahithophel doesn't care about things of value. He doesn't really notice value. All he seems to value, at this stage of the story at least, is, I guess, his own personal survival, and which is a disaster for him because it's actually the surest way to prevent his ultimate survival. What does wisdom mean to you? What kind of wisdom are you pursuing in life? Do you want to be seen as smart? Do you, do you want to be really wise ultimately? Often the two won't go together, often. Sometimes they do, but often they don't. You have to make a choice. Often we're attracted to the new for the sake of the new. We can be seduced by novelty. I wonder if that's what's gone on with Ithafel. Perhaps that's part of it. He's, he's noticed that Absalom is the new thing. He's just different. And that, that seems for many people to be enough. Just someone else, anything but this, just change. 
lot of people vote in elections on that basis. Just change this. A lot of people change the coach of a premiership football team on that basis. Just change it. Just change it. That will solve everything. If we just change it, then we'll win trophies. Then we'll finish top. Well, you, you might, but you might not. A change in itself doesn't guarantee anything. It doesn't. You, you've got to do more than just get rid of the old, bring in the new. There's got to be more packed into it, surely. But that's sadly the way that many of us evaluate things. Just, well, whatever's new is good. And to think that whatever's new is good is, is an ingrained cultural assumption that we've lived with in the 21st century, especially in cities like Brighton. Whatever's new is good. Because progress is, is, is whatever's new. If it's not old, it's better. You know, new is, 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 is new because it's better than old. You know, the past is populated by stupid people. That's why most of them are dead. Because <laughs> they're not as clever as we are. They haven't survived. You know, we, we're around now, which means we're better. Now, if you stop and consider the, <laughs> the, ba- the basic logic of that assumption, you go, wait, where, where, where would that come from? Why would we think that you're, you're, you're right about something because you have the, the new opinion, the current opinion, the, the opinion that everyone has right now? Does that make it right? Apparently it does. Very often today, we evaluate beliefs and opinions on the basis of, well, this is what we've come to accept in our society now. Scary. Is that a basis on which to to make opinions? Is that a basis on which to decide whether something's true or false or right or wrong? Well, it's what everyone believes now. No, surely that isn't. Because everyone might believe something wrong. That has happened. That's happened horrifyingly. Whole societies can swallow up something evil and if you asked them at the time why do you believe this they would have said because everybody does because everybody does no one is really looking to see if the emperor's wearing real clothes or not everybody can be swallowing something that's quite false but we still go along with it because it's new we don't imagine that actually we may have moved on from things in the past not on the basis of them being disproved but just on the basis of them being discarded, forgotten, like clothes. You know, we don't wear those because they're not in fashion. That's, that's fair enough, but you don't discard ideas and facts and truths just because they're from a previous era. You've got to disprove them first. You've got to show them to be false. Otherwise, all we're saying is, well, we're going to be progressive. We're just, we're just going to keep going forward because that's progress. It might not be. Just going forward with change might be the opposite of progress, for all we know. We've got to judge things by more than whether they're just new or not. This is what C.S. Lewis said in, in a fantastic paragraph, which I cannot improve on. He says this, We all want progress, but cr- progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn. Walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when we do arithmetic. When I've started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We're on the wrong road. And if that's so, we must go back. Going back 
is the quickest way home. Ahithophel hasn't seen that. He's not understood that. Is that. Have you understood that? Have you understood that there's wisdom that could be thousands of years old that could protect you from shipwreck in your life? Or have you decided that because it's old, it's false? It's surely a mistake. It's surely illogical. But that's the way the nation has gone at Absalom's time. Remember chapter 15, verse 13, the messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. The hearts of the men of Israel. And because everyone else has, Ahithophel thinks that he should too. It's a bad decision, even though it's attractive. And it's a flawed decision. We see that next in, in, in what happens. It's a flawed choice he makes. Because he's choosing for someone who's got massive weaknesses, disqualifying weaknesses. You, you can see that in the, the, the story. Now, you notice that in the story, Ahithophel gives his advice. He gives short, punchy, clear, smart advice, which is what he would do. He's Ahithophel. He's cunning. He says, okay, David's weakened. He's limited. He's not got an army. Hit him now. Don't wait. Do not wait. Go now. In fact, I'll tell you what. I'll go for you. I'll make it simpler. You're the king. If you have to move, the whole city has to move. I'll do it for you. It would, make, it would be an afternoon's work. I'll just get out there. I'll have him killed. In fact, I won't kill anybody else. Really simple. Just one hit. We're all done. I'll bring everyone else back to you. Job done. Nation behind you, Absalom. How about that? Genius. Classic Ahithophel. Everyone's like, vintage Ahithophel. Yes. And what does Absalom do? He's like, well, let's just listen to the other guy first. Let's bring Hushai. Come, Hushai, what do you reckon? Tell the, I mean, this is Hithophel. You wouldn't want to disagree with him. But you, you might. You might. Any, any ideas? What do you think? Do you have an opinion on this? Hushai, don't forget, he's implanted by David. And he brings his suggestion. Now, Hushai, he is his own kind of smart. Proof that you're allowed to be smart and, <laughs> and wise. Hushai, what does he do? Well, he, first of all, he gives a really elaborate idea. It's really colourful and flowery and over the top. Like, let's pull cities down with ropes into the valleys and leave no pebbles there and all this bizarre stuff. He really goes for it. But have you noticed the main thing he does? Okay, we got from uh, verse 11. My counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. That's like from... John O'Groats to Land's End. It's like the, 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 the stretch of the country. As the sand by the sea for multitude. And that you go to battle in person. What's he doing? Well, he knows Absalom's weakness. His disqualifying weakness. In fact, there's two, really. One of them is that Absalom is brutally violent. So Ahithophel saying, I'll just kill David. Absalom would like to kill more people, too. And sorry, Hushai also sees Absalom's vanity. He sees right through him. See, Absalom is, is, is a colossal ego. And, and Hushai's idea is all about Absalom. You should lead the nation. The whole nation from the top to the bottom should get behind. You build a great army. You lead the charge. He's appealing to his vanity, and it works like a charm. Absalom is totally sold. Oh, this is better advice. This, this is the stuff. Let's follow that. He says, 
at the beginning of, of verse 14. He says, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. I wonder why. It's because he gets to be in the driving seat. He gets to look glorious and grand. And here's the thing. All your life, you will be offered advice. And some of it will flatter your vanity. And some of it won't. In fact, often the best advice you will get will go directly against your vanity. The best advice you will get in the next week, next month, next year, and the rest of your life will often go right against your ego. It will offend you, and it will be unattractive to you. What are you going to do about that? What are you going to do? Are you going to do what Absalom did and wait for some other advice that makes you feel a bit better about yourself? Or are you going to be wise? You, you, you need to see the danger of vanity. It's terribly dangerous. It will drag you down to destruction. And if we just look through the advice that people give, sometimes out of flattery, sometimes people's motives are to flatter you. And sometimes their motives aren't to flatter you. They're just being nice. They're just your friend. But they will say things to you that will make you lift and feel good. And Yeah, I really should leave my job and start a band. Because <laughs> no one really sees how great I really am. Teachers never encouraged me. I really deserve encouragement because I do have the X factor. See, the world is, it seems, more and more full of people who've been advised through flattery. And it gets you shipwrecked if, you, if you're not careful. You know, I, I, I don't like working for this guy. I think I should start my own business. I think I'll just, just, I'll just keep, I'll tell you what, I'll keep some of the contacts and I'll start my own business. Now, I'm not against anyone starting a business or a band. But why? Why? If it's just for flattery, if it's just for vanity, I'm telling you, it's, it's going to kill you. It's disastrous. You've got to have way more reasons for that. You're going to have to face huge challenges. You, you mustn't be so easily seduced by the flattering alternative. However, in keeping it is with your apparent idea of destiny, be careful. Be th don't be like Absalom. See through it. What's the prudent option? What's the wise option? Sometimes the uncomfortable one. Sometimes it's the one you don't want to do. Sometimes it's, it's dull. <laughs> Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's a bit prosaic and domestic and it's not very sexy. And it's like, this can't be right. It could well be right. And the thing about what's right is that in the end, it's better for you anyway. Yeah, The thing that you thought would be so good for your ego, it could destroy you. The thing that you thought would be dull and routine, it could lead you in the end to fruitfulness. It could protect you from disaster and make you a better person. I really warn you about that. Don't be seduced by vanity. The vanity that others spill out on you or, or the vanity comes from your own heart. Don't be like Absalom. Don't be so easily conned. See through it. So he, he's flawed. This guy is weak. 
problem is it's not just that Absalom is flawed. The problem for Ahithophel is that Absalom is also doomed. Ahithophel has hitched his wagon to a doomed man, to a false king, to an antichrist. Can you do that? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you give your heart to something that's ultimately doomed. You see that in, in verse 14. We could read past it, but we do it at our risk because verse 14 is the center of the chapter. It's the kind of keystone. It's like if this chapter was an engagement ring, verse 14 would be the gem. Where it says, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. See, this, this book is, is a mysterious book, the Bible. This book tells stories in the same way that the newspapers do sometimes, to the point where if you're not looking carefully, it looks as though it's just history trundling along. It's just, it's just circumstances unfolding. The situation just develops and the plot thickens and then it unravels and then there's the closure and it's just another story. But when you read verses like that and they crop up all the way through the Bible, if you look carefully, they keep coming. You see all the way through there is a God who is wisely, compassionately, jealously, ensuring the outcome that he desires. God is in control, not Absalom. He can use Absalom. He can even use Absalom at his worst. Absalom at his most stupid. It's fine. God can use him. God's a good judo fighter. He can use the energy of his opponent. Fine. He'll use it against you. All your arrogance, all your rebellion, all your hatred of your father, I will turn it against you because I have ordained to destroy you. people if they turn against his king you bet you bet he does God really loves his son God is very passionate about his king being raised up to sit on the throne forever and ever and when anybody turns against him in the book including Absalom God won't have it what are we learning about God Everybody should beware of this. Everybody. Maybe you've never heard of a God like this. Maybe your God is a grandfather. Maybe your God is, a, is Candy Floss. Maybe your God is, 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 is just mush. God of the Bible is not mush. God of the Bible is loving to an extent that you could not possibly imagine. Compassionate and generous and kindness itself. Suffering in his kindness. brings all of Absalom's court together and he lets him machinate and plan and he allows him to walk off into utter destruction. God, God's in control. He's in control in the little threads of our lives that we think, who's, who's in charge? Who's pulling the strings? He is. He, he shows up sometimes in, in miraculous ways. He'll do things that will shock you. He'll answer prayers that you thought were impossible. 
He'll do miracles. He will. He'll do signs and wonders. But he'll also do things when you're not looking. He'll do things when you're asleep. He'll do things when you've got no idea he's doing them because he's God and he's totally in control, even of his enemies. We need to get to know the God of the Bible what he's like and and he's not just a sadist he's not just running the show for fun he's running the show with a plan and you see that it says he had ordained he had planned to destroy Absalom and you see that also in the in the verses that follow you get this long description of this kind of adventure it's like something out of the last Jedi it's this all this kind of running you know hiding in a well someone lies about what's on top of the well it's all you know it's fascinating it's exciting stuff but what's going on is the writer is trying to tell you in all the little circumstances the little details of life that seem to be spinning out of control there is someone in control he's completely in control because he's planning something all along He knows what he wants from history. There is a right side of history. There is a wrong side of history. And the wrong side of history is not whatever's out of fashion right now. The wrong side of history is whatever will not bow the knee to God's chosen king. God will see to it that he will be exalted above all things. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that the son of David, who sits on David's throne, will be forever in heaven. It's God's plan. You see that in countless places in the scripture let me call your attention to just one one of the psalms in the old testament you have said psalm 89 i've made a covenant with my chosen one i've sworn to david my servant i would establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations that's a jealous god speaking that's his passion on the page it says this in verse 20 i found david my servant with my holy oil i have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. He's talking about his promise that he made to David, that his son, his greater son, that was to come later and be born in the same town of of David's upbringing, Bethlehem, and live the life of a servant and in a place of obscurity but grow up to be conquering leader of the nations. Jesus is ordained by God to rule forever and ever and ever. That's the plan. That's what's working now. We need these verses again because of the times in which we live. We need these verses to remind us that there will be moments when like David we're in the wilderness They won't even be just moments. They'll be months sometimes, years sometimes, maybe lifetimes where Christians who follow Jesus will have to follow him into obscurity, will have to hide down wells in a sense, will have to live with the limitations of not being sought out, not being accepted in the palace, not being in places of influence like we feel we should. And we can assume that means that Jesus is not destined for influence. Jesus isn't destined to rule. Jesus is forgotten. God's forgotten Jesus. It's all gone for Jesus. These stories help us to see that it's never all forgotten by Jesus. God is working and planning, and he will see to it. His son gets to the throne. And he's done it through history again and again. This is what happens. Jesus, born in a manger, born in obscurity. Jesus, even though the Roman Empire tried to crush the voice of Christianity, and assumed that they could. 
And you even get engravements in, in some Roman relics where it seems that they assumed that they had. The Emperor Diocletian, it says in one of them, carved into marble, the one who brought an end to the cult of Christianity. Seems that God brought an end to the cult of Diocletian. This is the, the, the way that, that history works so often. In this city, a man who said, I want the Bible for people in English, was taken away and burned alive. That was outrageously unlikely. That was never, ever, ever going to happen. You will not have the Bible in English in this country. Never, ever. No one would have thought that there was any chance for Jesus' words to be spoken in this nation. Here I am speaking in public and will be forever. <laughs> not tonight, but forever in that sense. <laughs> Sometimes you think it will happen. There's, there's, there's no stopping him, is there? That's the point. History's a story of people trying to stop him. Chairman Mao in China in the 50s, we'll throw the missionaries out, we'll throw the Christians out, Christianity's gone. No, no Christianity in China. Surest way, it seems, to, to ensure that Christianity thrives in China. Tens of millions of Christians in China now, thanks to Chairman Mao. God can't be thwarted. He can't be kept off his throne. Whatever we put in his place, it will get bumped off again. Even Absalom. Because, because Jesus, the son of David, God's royal plan continues. He'll have, he'll have his son on the throne of eternity. And the thing we've got to face, each one of us, is has he got our allegiance? Do, do we see that? Do we see the way history's going? Are we on the right side of history? Or are we just going with what's happening now? With what goes on Twitter or YouTube or what the opinion polls say. Because, well, everyone believes that, so it must be right. I, I, yeah, I'll go to church as well because, you know, I want a bit of, I don't know, I want to hedge my bets, I suppose. That's not allegiance, my friends. <laughs> You've got to decide, where's history going? Is it randomly going along with people's favorite opinions and fashionable ideas and trendy ideologies? Or is God working all things together for the glory of his son? If the latter, then we've got to live out some seasons where we're in exile. Just got to. Because it will happen over time. It will take its time. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. You wait on him. Trust him. Say, I know my redeemer lives. I know Jesus is risen from the dead. I know he's alive. I know he's on the throne forever and ever and ever. And I'm joined with him and I will reign with him. <laughs> Wherever I am right now. You've got to come to that persuasion, whatever the culture's saying. A whole nation can reject him. Well, it seems from this book, in this chapter, when a nation like Israel rejects David, what happens? Well, that last paragraph's interesting. All those names, did you notice? And all these people bringing tributes of you know, raisins and weird presents in the Bible, aren't they? The, the goat's milk and honey and all the rest. But, but what's going on here is it's, it's tributes. It's people from other nations, other nations who love David. Even when Israel, his nation, turns against him. It says in John's Gospel, he came unto his own but his own did not recognize him. And he is the light that brings light to all men. When Jesus came to, to Israel, Israel threw out their Jesus, threw out their Messiah, crucified him. He wasn't welcome there. Well, who goes where he is welcome then? 
People in Western cities like Brighton, well, we don't want Jesus. We're not interested in Jesus. I tell you, they do in China. They do in Africa. They do in, in Iran. Did you know the country in the world with the fastest rate of proportional church growth is Iran? So we're the weird ones in Brighton where people don't want to know about Jesus. He'll go where he's wanted. Maybe he'll be wanted in Brighton too. I pray for it. That's what we need, isn't it? We need people's hearts to see the change, to understand. We need the true kingdom. We don't want Absalom. We want the one God chose. We want the one God chose. We want Jesus. I tell you, if you've seen anything good in David, it is multiplied to infinity in Christ. And if you've seen anything bad in David, which there is plenty of, it's not even there in Jesus Christ. That's why people brought tributes to David, because he was good. They saw good things in him. But there is so much more good to be seen in Jesus. Have you seen how good he is? Have you seen his goodness? Have you seen how gracious he is? Have you seen how faithful he is? God, God is bringing someone to be the ruler of everything one day. To bring his authority to bear over everything in heaven and on earth. He's going to unite all things under the headship of one man, even Christ Jesus. That's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? One tyrant, one dictator, one master. Sounds horrible. Not if it's Jesus, it isn't. It's Jesus who's going to rule. It's Jesus who's going to rule everything. I can't think of anything more wonderful. I want to be with him. I want to be where he is. I want to give my life to him. I want to trust him. I want to give my allegiance to him. Let's pray, shall we? We're going to uh, celebrate communion in a moment. Let me just pray and lead us before we do that. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you've chosen him to rule over heaven and earth. We want him to rule over our hearts, our church, even this city. We say, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in Brighton, in Hove, in Shoreham, and beyond, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.